Welcome to the Jao Podcast, a series of conversations between writer-director Rika Ohara, myself, composer John O'Podmore, and members of the team drawn together to create a feature film based on Lord Byron's epic poem. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to Professor Rebecca Nesvet, Professor of Literature at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. It was Professor Nesvet's idea that the Jaor's broken tale was actually finished in the fifth canto of Don Juan, in which Juan spends a night in the Sultan's harem dressed as a woman, that originally drew Rika to the story. Rebecca, what was the first thing that clued you into this idea that uh, Layla could be the Jaor himself but dressed as a woman was it the was it the plot holes in the original poem I was really intrigued by the similarities between Byron's different so-called Turkish tales there are a lot of them um, that critics have, have noticed and um, and then of course in one of the other Turkish tales Lara there is a character a woman named Gunnar who um, dresses up as a man, um, and, and as a man, she is Khalid, and, and uh, that is not revealed to the reader until the very end of the story. And of course, she's in love with a man who, who appears to the world to be a man. It's all very much like uh, like Shakespeare's "As You Like It" or Twelfth Night" in some ways, you know. And so, if you you know that he's doing that, and that he comes back to this theme of cross-dressing as, as subterfuge and as, as you know, covering up one's own desires, which is what Gulnar is doing. Um, so, you know, I was thinking about those two things, and then I started thinking, well, you know, when did we see Layla, whose name means darkness, of course, a kind of beautiful, mysterious darkness, um, in the shower? You know, are, are there moments when she disappears? And if so, who is present when she disappears? And then you look at that and there definitely are moments when she's not there and um, the main character is. Of course, he does not have a name, which makes it, you know, very convenient that, that you know, he picks up another name if, if, if he's calling himself Layla. And um, the, the covering of her body, I thought I review um, mysteries for contemporary mysteries, a lot of them kind of neo-Victorian and steampunk um, for a website called Reviewing the Evidence. And, you know, when you read mysteries, you just think, uh, what is it that the characters have to hide? What things are they doing to, to hide their actions or to hide their appearances? And um, it, it was very confusing to me. Like, why is her body wrapped up if she's already dead? If the person who is responsible for her death actually has the authority to offer, to to order her death, which he does, um, and and there is this this extreme secretness about her body. Well, maybe this is a good opportunity to have a listen to how Byron describes Layla's body in the poem, here read by Nick Rawling. Her eyes' dark charm to a vein to tell, but gaze on that of the gazelle. It will assist thy fancy well, as large, as languishingly dark, but soul beamed forth in every spark that darted from beneath the lid, bright as the jewel of Jamshid. Yea, soul, and should our prophet say that form was naught but breathing clay, 
by Allah, I would answer nay, though on Al-Sirat's arch I stood, which totters o'er the fiery flood, with paradise within my view, and all his houris beckoning through, oh, who young Layla's glance could read, and keep that portion of his creed, which saith that woman is but dust, a soulless toy for tyrant's lust. On her might Mufti's gaze, and own that through her eye the immortal shone on her fair cheek's unfading hue. The young pomegranate's blossoms strew, their bloom in blushes ever new. Her hair in hyacinthine flow, when left to roll its folds below, as midst her handmaids in the hall, she stood superior to them all, hath swept the marble where her feet gleamed whiter than the mountain sleet, Air from the cloud that gave it birth, it fell and caught one stain of earth. The signet nobly walks the water, so moved on earth Circassia's daughter, the loveliest bird of Frangistan. As rears her crest the ruffled swan and spurns the wave with wings of pride, when past the steps of stranger man along the banks that bound her tide. Thus rose fair Layla's whiter neck, thus armed with beauty would she check intrusion's glance till folly's gaze shrunk from the charms it meant to praise. Thus high and graceful was her gait, her heart as tender to her mate. Her mate, stern Hassan, who was he? Alas, that name was not for thee. So, you, you know, you put together between the holds, Byron's previous um, representations of people who find liberation in going about publicly as someone of another gender and, you know, and the, the ways in which, um, you know, without the, the cross-dressing that kind of played out in his life, too. And, and then finally, you have the fact that this particular Turkish tale is a fragment. And the fragment is actually a convention in, in British Gothic um, literature. There are a lot of wonderful Gothic novels and poems and stories in which the story is only partially told because somebody has found a manuscript and it's only partial or it's been transmitted and rewritten through several people or this is an oral story that's gone on for generations. But Byron says that the Jaor, that that's a fragment and he keeps insisting this is all I know. This is actually like the final lines of, of the poem. In, in which he says that the dying Jaor um, doesn't want anybody to know his name and the confession that he gives, which is, of course, has all sorts of obvious holes in it, is all he wants anyone to know of him um, before his, his anonymous death. So, you know, you have to think about why is this a fragment? I mean, it's not that Gothic tales have to be fragment, be fragmentary because Byron does lots of Gothic that isn't. It's fragments hide the things that the people telling the story or the people passing the story on don't know. It's like there are pieces that are being broken off and then either we never know what those are or it's a puzzle and it's the job of the reader to, to recover them. So if the Jaor was Layla and you, you, know, you would, were to want to complete the story, then an unbroken tale would have, um, you know, would have shown all of those pieces, would have shown things from from his point of view. And I think that's connected with by what Byron is allowed to say um, in his society. Like we absolutely know 
for instance, in the in in Danju and in, in the incident in the harem, um, that he he sort of censored himself in his depiction of um, his his experience in in the harem when he is pretending probably not you know very convincingly um, to to be a woman because uh, homosexuality could be punished with a death penalty in in Byron's lifetime. It, you know um, you can look at, if you want to look at at actual cases of people being prosecuted and persecuted um, for homosexuality in, in Regency Britain. You can go on Old Bailey online and, you know, look up some that happened to ordinary people that were never going to, you know, learn about the way that we learn about, say, Oscar Wilde. But, I mean, he was, he was very afraid of that. There is a theory that that is um, why he was pushed into exile um, during the, the dissolution of his marriage to Annabella Milbank, that, you know, she knew about that. So, you know, if he is uh, telling this broken tale about Layla because he can't tell the complete one and because he's done this elsewhere or is going to do this elsewhere, like in Lara and and um, Don Juin, then it, it sort of made sense. And I think when I wrote it, I was a graduate student and I wasn't as careful about things. And as, you know, I, I know, I hope I am now. And I really just want to come back to Oscar Wilde's short story, The Portrait of Mr. W.H., in which someone who is very young comes up with a, a, a kind of wild theory about Shakespeare's sonnets that has social justice connections for him and then um, passes it through several people who waffle back and forth about whether they believe in it or not. And in the end, you know, what Wilde suggests is that it's actually the role of fiction and the role of art and film and, you know, uh, like uh, Rika's work, um, to say, if this is not what's actually happening in one text through adaptation, we can make it real. We can make it the story. Well, it's 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 uh, uh, planting a seed for for creating a whole new narrative, isn't it? For creating a, a new a new work of art. Yeah. Um, do you think that there are elements of the Joa that are are written for two audiences? That he has a, a, an audience that will understand coded references um and in that way in in presenting a fragment it's it's there's a sense of a puzzle and that he was deliberately flirting with danger because he knew that it was dangerous what he was doing but it was it, it sort of had to have that little frisson of danger as part of the uh, the excitement in the whole piece i mean i think he that's absolutely it Jono, that um I mean, you could see Byron doing this elsewhere. That in one of his uh, his very early works is the Thursa poems, a series of love poems addressed to someone who is dead. Um, which is, of course, you know that that's an essential part of of the Byronic hero is that he's mysteriously grieving um, some lover whom he can't describe. And in in the Thursa poems, um, Thursa is of course a male name from the Bible. And uh, it's now believed that the poems were written to John Eccleston, the young man who is an amazing singer whom um, Byron was in love with in Cambridge. And then when Byron went on, you know, the travels that he hoped would would make him into a great writer, and he came back and uh, Eccleston had died and his mother had died also. So he, you know, he, he came back just too late to um, to see either of them before their, their deaths. And he was very heartbroken about that. But that, that is the assumption that that's a dedicatee of those those poems. Um, he has a po- an early poem called a Cornelian or Carnelian, so the red stone, um, in which he talks about um, someone uh, gender very carefully not specified, 
giving him a piece of jewelry with a carnelian in it and that this person is not of his social class. This is like a middle class person um, for whom this trinket, this is not a terribly valuable um, stone, you know, would have been a luxury. And it's not, you know, to to an aristocrat like Byron, but he he treasures it because of what this person means to him. So he's definitely doing that for two audiences. I'm assuming it's a public audience and a private audience. There were some friends he knew from Cambridge who would have been able to decode this. Sadly, I mean, just to add to the danger, one of his friends from Cambridge um, suspiciously died and probably committed suicide. I can't quite remember if we know that, certainly or not. But uh, he he also was a closeted um, gay man and he was afraid of being exposed. So that happened very early, you know, in Byron's life. Um, and it probably did have an effect on on his perception of the danger of writing about, you know, his desires as a bisexual man. So I think he he was often writing for for two different audiences. And of course, he circul you know, he had so many friends who were part of his network, whether he was in the same city or country as them or not, um, and could read his writing. So he had something of a manuscript culture. Uh, going on where some people would understand his works uh, in more personal ways than others. And that's like really the way that literature has often worked. Whether or not Layla is the Zhao or Byron absolutely wrote with that kind of audience in mind throughout the Turkish tales. And I think you can see that in the way the Zhao talks about having a big deadly secret, um, his conversations with his confessor at the end. Um, and the fact that he is a Zhaor, he's a, a self-identified foreigner, you know, he's come to a place that's strange to him because there's something he needs to run away from. And it's actually something that even precedes his adventures that are described in the poem. We never know why he's a Frank who is further east than he thinks he's supposed to be. So whatever drove him out of his original name and country, we just don't know what that is. But I think like that frisson of there's something, something the unspeakable, um, you know, that that definitely has a queer reading yeah. to it. Yes, I was. It was it's just that interesting um, um, dichotomy that you have hidden secrets, but you tell the world that you've got hidden secrets. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, he was such a risk taker, right? So I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, his entire act, if you think about, you know, who the Byronic hero is, and of course, the point of the Byronic hero is he's saying, I have a secret, you don't know what the secret is, I can't tell you the secret, it's unspeakable. And maybe he can't tell us the secret because it's traumatic for him. Like if, the, you know, when the secret is, you know, as it often is, that there's somebody he's in love with whom he wasn't supposed to be in love with and now they're dead. You know, obviously, that's that's a secret that he's kind of teasing the world with. And that is part of a very long tradition, that that goes back at least to his um, Italian poetic predecessor, uh, Petrarca, um, or Petrarch in English, who, you know, famously writes the canzoniere, the, um, his sonnets that, that really kind of uh, popularized the sonnet vogue across Europe about being in love with a married woman whom he sees once in a church door, which to me is extremely like stocky and weird. And then he writes poems about her for decades, including after she's dead. I, I, talking of, of uh, precedence, um, especially taking the poem and then setting it in cinema, which is the 
the 20, 20th and 21st century equivalent of theatre. Of course, there's this long tradition of men dressing as women in theatre, in Shakespeare, in Shakespeare, yeah. in Tudor, Tudor theatre, mm-hmm. and uh, also in, in Kabuki. And um, I was just wondering about how Byron's audience would understand a man dressing as a woman compared to a, a mm-hmm. contemporary audience. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I want to start with how with the other way around, actually, because it's more common on, on the Regency stage, which is a woman dressing as a man. So using theater to destabilize gender by showing how obviously, you know, it, easily it can be performed. That was actually a huge part of Regency theater. That's something that I think it's sad we've until uh, somewhat recently um, kind of, you know, not been as comfortable with in the theater. In the Regency Theater, there was, there was a convention called the Breaches Role, which was a woman playing a man, and usually with little in-jokes about how the audience really knows that she's a woman. If you want to see this in a play that's still in the repertory, Cherubino in uh, Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, um, is intended, it's, it's written to be played by a woman, and as far as I've, I've seen, always is. And there are all sorts of jokes about, you know, we kind of know that this is a woman playing a young boy um, who is being drafted into the army. And of course, they don't, you know, they don't draft women, you know, so there are all sorts of jokes around that. And uh, there were lots of other plays on the Regency stage, uh, both the official theaters and and the the so-called minor theaters, um, in which you have uh, those breaches parts about the um, actress really being developed in in the English theater after Shakespeare. So um, there were definitely men and boys playing women, you know, in Shakespeare's professional company, because outside of court masks, you, you don't really have women playing women. In that time, that is something that educated 19th century people with an interest in Shakespeare knew about. So it's definitely something they they would have thought about. What I would love to know is if in Byron's many travels, he encountered any performance traditions in which men more commonly played women. Um, I I just, I don't know. I wish I did. Um, in Turkey... There is a tradition of cross-dressing male dancers called kochaks. So I'm sure it was regular part of the entertainment at the court of Ali Pasha, where Byron stayed during his grand tour. Um, so, you know, if, if Byron had seen a good deal of performance in which women played men, performance in which men played women, you know, that would have been just, you know, it, part of what, theater is to him and maybe part of what connects different styles of theater around the world. I mean, I don't know, but certainly, you know, if you look at different traditions like Kathakali is another one, um, there, there seems to be more theater traditions in which that is common before the modern era um, than those in which it isn't. Byron was the patron of a theater company. He had to abandon that when he left um, England due to his scandal um, in 1816, but it, it was one of the two official theaters. He was like the literary manager. He read the scripts and he helped them to decide um, what to produce. So what that means is that he was not only familiar with the theater that was put on in England, but he was familiar with the stuff that was rejected, right? Um, and that really, I, I think, opens him up to seeing stuff that like, damn, I would have liked this one, but we can't really produce that. 
You have been listening to the Gearwu podcast by the creators of the feature film based on Lord Byron's 1813 best-selling poem. I am the writer-director Rika Ohara, and I'm composer John O'Podmore. Rika has been joining us from Los Angeles while I'm here in London. Thank you again for listening, and look out for the next episode of the Jaw Podcasts.